All right, turn back open if you have a Bible or scroll back over if you have a device to Mark chapter 10. We're going through Mark's gospel. We're taking uh, our time. We're going very slow. Sometimes we'll take a little passage. Sometimes we'll take a bigger passage and we'll just go through it and delineate the truths that the Holy Spirit has for us there. Uh, And today this passage is really about blindness. It is all about blindness. How many people in here know who Helen Keller is? You've heard of her? She was, uh, at a very young age, struck blind and deaf. I don't think she was born blind, um, but she, got, uh, she had a disease that made her blind really quickly. And she, she said this once. There, her, there she is, by the way. That's her friend that finally broke through and communicated with her. This is an aside, but this, you may find this interesting. When, when they were finally able to make human contact with her because she was blind and deaf, one of the first things they asked her was, uh, they told her about God, and they said, did you know about God? And this blow, I get chill bumps every time I think of this story. And she said, I already knew him. I just didn't know his name. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? Romans 1 says, he has made himself manifest by the things he has made. And in that list, the things he has made, we include ourselves, right? We're made in his image. We're made in God's image. Uh, and she knew that instinctively. She, she didn't know Jesus, but she knew instinctively, intelligent design, there's a creator, I belong to him so on and so forth. But somebody asked her one day, very bluntly, they said, isn't it terrible to be blind? What a terrible thing to say to somebody that's blind, by the way. Don't ever do that. But she said this. She was very witty, Helen Keller was. And she said, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. And you know what God is doing and what Mark is doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He's setting this passage up. Mark is a brilliant writer, and he leaves some things out that happened in the life of Jesus. You guys, if you've been a Christian for very long or are familiar with your Bible, you know we have four different accounts of the story of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And sometimes they say the same thing. You'll find the same story and event recorded four different times, and each from the angle of the writer that was there, maybe. Um, Mark leaves some things out when Jesus gets to Jericho. You're not going to find the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man that climbed up the sycamore tree. Not in Mark's gospel. He leaves that out. Luke takes care of that. But Mark wants to slap together these two stories. The last section was James and John, the sons of thunder. They are in the closest circle with Jesus. And they go to Jesus and they ask him a really direct question. They say, teacher, we want us to... We want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's the blunt, direct approach, isn't it? Hey, God, come here. (laughs) Get over here. Listen to me. I want you to do for me whatever I ask you. And Jesus is so gracious. You remember what he said? He said, what is it that you want me to do for you? Now, what an amazing invitation from God to just, you know, it's almost like you rub a lamp kind of thing, right? Poof, three wishes. What do you want? But it's interesting because that question, if you back up in chapter 10, he said it in verse 30. He said it in verse 30, uh, 36. What do you want me to do for you? And James and John give an answer. Well, in this passage, Jesus is about to ask this blind man the exact same thing. In Greek, word for word, exact same question. What do you want me to do for you? So you've got James and John, the sons of thunder, the inner circle of Jesus. They approach Jesus brashly, boldly, with confidence, and they say, hey, we got a question for you. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And then you got this blind beggar on the side of the road in Jericho. He's desperate. And he calls out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he gets Jesus' attention. And Jesus says the same identical thing to him. What do you want me to do for you? Both of them 
answer differently. You know what James and John say? You remember, right? They say, hey, look, we want the best seat in the kingdom. <laughs> we want to be on your right hand and on your left hand. This whole Messiah thing, you're going to be the king. You need a royal ambassador. You need somebody to carry your robe and all that and taste your wine for you and a cupbearer. And we want that position. We want honor. We want authority. We want power. We want prestige. We want position. We want it all, Jesus. You know what Jesus says? No. Uh-uh, not doing it. Number one, that's not my position to give, Jesus says. My father arranges that. But secondly, he said, are you able to drink the cup? Cups meant wrath. And are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm about to undergo? That meant suffering, overwhelming baptism of suffering. Drink the cup of God's wrath. He says, are you able? And you remember what they said? It's humorous what they said, right? They said, yeah, yeah, we're good. We're able. We're able to do it. So they came thinking they were worthy. We're worthy to have those positions. And Jesus said, no. And then you got a blind beggar that comes. Now remember, he's the blind one, right? Well, maybe he's not as blind as we think he is. He can't see physically, but spiritually he has insight that makes up for his physical blindness. It's actually James and John. They're the ones that didn't see at all. That's what Mark's doing. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. He's showing all of us a lesson on faith, blindness, and discipleship. Because see... The blind beggar Bartimaeus, he came thinking he was unworthy. That's why I said, Lord, Master, have mercy on me, son of David. That was a title of, of messianic fulfillment. Messiah, son of David. You're the king. You're the true king, the truer son of David who came to fulfill the kingdom. So this is taking two stories, slapping them together, and Mark is giving us a lesson on blindness. So this is our outline. Three points. The second point is going to be really long. The first one's not, and the third one's not, just if you keep up with those things. Sometimes a preacher says, I got three points, and the first one's 20 minutes, and they go, oh, goodness. <laughs> so three points here. Number one, faith is a fight, okay? Now, you may be thinking, if you're relatively new to this church, and you've been coming the last few Sundays, we have been soaking in the gospel. We've been soaking in grace. We've been talking about God's goodness, his kindness. Jesus paid it all, and you don't leave the tip. Christianity is a, it is finished religion. It's a done religion, not do, right? We've been talking about those things. And you came today now and you may think, is this the same church? <laughs> this sounds like a little bit of a different message you're preaching here. But listen, like I told you last week, I want to be faithful to whatever the passage is. I don't trust myself to know everything the Holy Spirit wants you to hear. That's why I, I commit myself to going through a book, right? So what am I preaching on next week? Whatever's next in the passage, right? And so this week, we're going to be challenged in a good way. We're going to be challenged in a good way. What is faith? Faith is a fight. Faith is a fight. And the first fight that we see here is, it's a fight to see yourself clearly. A fight to see yourself clearly. And there's a myriad of ways you could say it. You could say, faith is fleeing self-reliance. You might say it that way. It's seeing yourself for who you truly are in the sight of God and knowing that in and of yourself, you have, check this out, absolutely nothing to offer to God. Nothing. Except an empty hand. Like maybe, I don't know, a beggar. <laughs> right? A beggar. This is a great picture. I think, I think Bartimaeus is a parable of the human condition, to be honest with you. He is. He's blind. Right? He can't see. He's in darkness, perpetual darkness. We don't know if he was born that way or if a disease. Very common in the ancient world 
water would be, a, 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 you could get, you know, like an eyeball-eating bacteria with your water. I don't know. Anything could happen. A lot of people were blind back then. It was very common. So I don't know if this is something that happened later in life or if he's born this way, but he can't see a thing. He was blind. He was reduced to begging on the side of the road in, in Jericho, right? Depending on the goodness of other people. He had no hope. He was weak. He was helpless. Had nothing to offer anybody. The only possession that he owned that we know of is this cloak that he threw aside to run to Jesus. And this is offensive to a lot of people. I got to tell you this. I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. I'm a church planner. I talk to a lot of people. I talk to them about this is what the Bible says about you. Do you accept it? And it's hard. And you have to be careful and loving the way you explain it to people. Uh, but the Bible says some, some sobering things about humanity. What kind of creatures are we? Well, it says we're blind in our sin. We're blind. Man, that's offensive to hear. It's like, hey, do you know the Bible actually says you see with your eyes and everything, see the beauty of God's creation, but spiritually, you're blind, man. You're not seeing 2020. You can't see the glory of Christ. You've been blinded to it. And if left to yourself, you will never see it. It takes a supernatural, sovereign, radically intervention, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, act of God to open your eyes, to lift those scales from your eyes. The Bible also says you're dead in your sins. Outside of Christ, we're dead. Man, that's offensive too, isn't it? Who wants to be labeled a blind person or a dead person? And it also says this. Outside of Christ, we have been taken captive by Satan to do his will. That, that, most people, that's like, oh, come on. You're going to talk to me about the devil with a pitchfork. No, look, the Bible talks about the reality. There is a devil. His name's Satan, Lucifer. He's the opposer, the accuser. He hates God. He hates God's creation. He hates people made in God's image. And so he seeks to blind them and hold them captive to do his will. Jesus acknowledged the reality of Satan. He said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So if you don't believe in the devil, then you're calling Jesus a liar. You know, Jesus affirmed the existence of the devil. He's very alive. He's very active in the world. Opposing God, resisting God, seeking to hinder the work of God. He hates the church. He hates the gospel. That's why he seeks to pervert it and distort it. That's his best work. It's distorting the gospel. So the Bible says we're blind and we're deaf and we've been taken captive to do Satan's will and that we're rebels we're sinners by nature, we're sinners by birth, we're sinners by choice. Well, you get the idea, that's offensive to a lot of people, right? But listen, until you see those things about yourself and acknowledge those things about yourself, you're not really in the fight for faith. You're not. Bartimaeus knew that. Listen, this is more than just about Bartimaeus wanting to see physically. There's a word used here when Jesus says to him at the end here, he says, your faith has made you well. The, I'm not trying to be a Bible geek, but the word for well is sozo in Greek. That is a word that means salvation. Your faith has saved you. And we all know what the power is in the object of his faith. What, what was the object of Bartimaeus' faith? Jesus Christ, that's right. He's saying your faith has made you well physically and has healed you spiritually. So this is about salvation. This is a picture of what faith fights for. How does, how does faith fight? Well, faith fights to see clearly, right? To see yourself clearly and to know you're undeserving. And that's, that's what was going on here with Bartimaeus. Dane Ortland, one of my favorite dudes to read, he said this, The strange way naturally blind human beings like you and me receive true sight is by asking for mercy. All it takes is an admission of personal blindness. 
And what stops up mercy from flowing into the lives of blind sinners is not the blindness itself, that's the very reason Jesus came, but stubborn denial of blindness. All we bring is our need. All we bring is our blindness. And so for those of you that are saying, well, look, I'm in the kingdom. I'm a Christian. I've repented of my sins. I've trusted Jesus. I've been following him for years. That's great. This still has application because there's still this, you know, this nature. The Bible says in Romans chapter 7, it says that we still have a fight present within us, right? The things that we want to do, we sometimes are, are find a weakness, this overpowering weakness. And the things that we, that, that we there's this conflict, Right? Following Jesus does not mean the absence of all sin. It means the presence of a struggle. There's the presence of a struggle. So there's still pockets of blindness, is what I'm trying to tell you spiritually, that we all carry. And it's good to acknowledge that to God. That's faith to say, Lord, I know there's blind spots. I know that I have them culturally, personally, socially, spiritually. I know I have them. I admit it to you. I don't see them. Help me see them. Help me to see them so that I can change. Man, that's a humble prayer that God loves to hear and he loves to answer. We need Jesus to supernaturally show us our blindness. And listen, we need community too. That's another sermon for another day. You see these disciples working out their theology and community on the road together with Jesus, hashing it out. We need each other. You see blind spots in me that I don't know exist. And I won't until you tell me in love and show me. Don't be a jerk about it or anything, okay? Be nice about it. <laughs> that invites response, right? When you're humble and say, brother, I love you. Man, you're an idiot. <laughs> You know, you talk too much, you get in my personal space. <laughs> You're... Anyway, another sermon for another day. Um, see yourself clearly. That is the, the fight. Flee self-reliance. See, if Bartimaeus is trusting in himself, his goose is cooked. And so is ours. The Bible is constantly telling us to abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. It's a fight. You've got to see your need to abide in Him. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do a few little things, right? Is that what he says, John 15, 5? No. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm the vine, you're the branches. I don't grow grapes. We don't have many vineyards around here, but uh, if Jesus is the vine and we're the branches and we want to bear fruit, if you sever yourself from the vine, you're done, man. <laughs> you are done. You're finished. Ain't going to be any fruit at all. No low-hanging fruit, not even any shrivel-up fruit. There's going to be death. And you're not going to be good for anything so what's the, what's the ticket here? What's the secret ingredient? The secret ingredient is da, 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 desperation. Bartimaeus is desperate. And by the way, it's interesting that we, we have his name here. You know, the Bible doesn't always give us the names of the people who are the objects of miracles, but we, we know Bartimaeus. You know, bar means son. Did you guys know that? Anytime you read that in the Bible, bar, whatever, it means son of. So Bartimaeus is son of Timaeus. And you know what Timaeus means? Dirty, unclean, dishonorable, filthy. It's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, your very name would remind you of that. Hey, son of filth, you need help? <laughs> this guy knows he's unworthy. It's just, a, I'm telling you, this is a parable of the human condition apart from God. He's blind, but he sees, seeing yourself clearly. Son of impurity, who needs the cleansing power of Jesus Christ to come and and make them new, and to restore them, right? You guys may be familiar with, and forgive me, I'm not very good with pronouncing historical names. Are you familiar with uh, 
Auschwitz. Am I saying that right, Mark? Help me out here. Auschwitz. It's a death camp that Adolf Hitler uh, oversaw and sent four million Jews to their death there. I don't need to tell you how terrible that was. But listen, after Germany surrendered and the war was over, and Adolf Hitler supposedly killed himself, they started finding all these leaders that were responsible for those death camps. And one such man, whose name was Adolf Eichmann, they, they apprehended him 20 years after all that went down. They found him in another country 20 years later, brought him back to Israel to stand trial for his deeds against humanity. And this is him on the left 20 years before. This is him on the right, Adolf Eichmann. And they had to call eyewitnesses who could testify in these hearings to the inhumane things that these leaders uh, exposed them to. And so they found a man to do that, and his name was Yehiel Denur. Yehiel Denur. He was one of the principal witnesses to testify against this guy, and he knew that he was going to have to do it, and it haunted him for days. He had nightmares about being in the same room with this guy. But it finally happened. Finally, the moment came when Denur was escorted into the courtroom, and he sat in a witness chair, and this guy was behind bulletproof uh, glass, and you can imagine why. He was behind bulletproof glass on trial in the middle of the courtroom, and then the witness, Denur, was escorted in there, and he sat in the witness chair, and he read a written statement, and then the prosecution began to ask him questions, but he couldn't answer them. He couldn't answer them, and here's why. Because after he read his statement, he looked up, and he looked at Adolf Eichmann, and years of, of you, you can imagine what washed over him, but he fell to the ground, he fainted, and he began to sob uncontrollably, and the judge pounded his gavel on the desk and brought order to the courtroom, and nothing else was said about it. He couldn't really finish. And everyone wondered, yeah, we, we know what happened. He was filled with rage, he was filled with hate, he was filled with anguish and agony, reliving that nightmare that happened in that death camp that he survived. Uh, that was what it was, but it actually wasn't. That's not why he fainted and fell on the ground and passed out. There was an interview done on 60 Minutes, years after this happened. And they asked him, what happened in that courtroom? Why did you faint? Why did you pass out? They said, was it hatred? Was it fear? Was it the horrid memories? And this is what he told Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes. By the way, this is, this is, the, uh, this is what happened in the courtroom. He looked up and saw, saw him. Yehiel Denur did. And then he fainted. He passed out and they had to carry him out of the courtroom. This is what he said happened. He says, no, it was none of those things. Rather, all at once, I realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. He was an ordinary man, and I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I collapsed because I saw my reflection in him. I am exactly like he. Eichmann is in all of us. Now, that may offend some of you to say that, because you would imagine, oh, my word, what are you telling me, preacher? You're telling me that all of us are capable of doing acts against humanity like that guy said? Well, that's what his witness said on the stand. All he's saying is, that's a picture of humanity. All of us, if left to ourselves, have that kind of potential. All of us do. I would say that man saw himself more clearly than a lot of human beings do. That's the doctrine of depravity that the Bible talks about. It's very offensive to people. When we fell in the Garden of Eden, we lost something. We lost something. The relationship we have with God. The Bible says, on the day that you eat of it, you will die. You will surely die. And we did die. Spurgeon said, we didn't fall down and break our pinky. We died spiritually. We lost our connection with God. 
And if not for, for God's hand of restraining grace on us, man, all of us would be in trouble, wouldn't we? That's what this man realized. He saw himself clearly. His statement captures the central truth about human nature. As a result of the fall, sin is in all of us. We're desperate for Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson said this, There is a fundamental law in God's kingdom. There is no other way to come to Jesus but on the basis of your need. And Bartimaeus is desperate. He knows that he needs Jesus. And that's what I think so many people miss out on. And that I, I, want, I want to transition and bridge to the second point here. And I've been praying about this all week. I pray that this challenges you in a good way. You don't leave here feeling like the preacher scolded you, okay? I, feel, I, I pray that you leave here challenged in a good way. Because what you see in this story with this blind beggar named Bartimaeus is a desperation that's very rare. It's rare in the Bible, and it's rare in my experience in Christianity. Even with people that have been Christians for years, and they're just bored. They just, they just seem like they're bored. They got Facebook, and they've got uh, their phone, and they got all these other things competing for their attention and their passion and their zeal. And they're just kind of bored with Jesus, you know? There's no desperation. There's no passion. There's no zeal. That's the second thing you fight for. That's the second part of our outline, is you fight. You fight uh, to see Jesus clearly. You fight through, you push through these obstacles and these things that compete for your attention and your loyalty. You know the thing that Mark left out of this story, that Jesus, when he was in Jericho, he encountered another desperate man named Zacchaeus. You remember that story? As a kid, we all sang the songs probably. Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. You know, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, Filthy rich. <laughs> I could actually use that word. Filthy rich because all the money he got was by betraying his own, his own people, the Jews. He stole it. He robbed it. And he was miserable. That's why he wanted to see Jesus. But do you remember the story? Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus and he heard Jesus was going to pass that way through Jericho, the city of Palms. Same place where Bartimaeus was. But see, Zacchaeus was a hated man. People hated his stinking guts because he robbed them and he stole from them. So guess what? They're not letting him through. He's a wee little man. He's short. He can't get through to see the parade. So they're all hip-checking him, you know, blocking his view. So you know what he did? You know how desperate he was? He gave up. He said, ah, it's too hard. Now, that's not what he did. You know what he did? This rich, wealthy... Uh, let me contemporize this for you. Put it in shoe leather. Have you ever seen a guy carrying a briefcase, wearing a $3,000 pinstripe suit, climb up a tree? Have you ever seen that? The guy that actually has a real leather chair in a corner office overlooking the city. You ever seen him get so desperate he throws caution to the wind and says, I don't care how undignified I look. I'm desperate. You ever seen that? Rare. It would be rare for you to see something like that. That's what Zacchaeus did. He didn't care. He said, I'm guilty. I'm empty. Life is meaningless to me. This money means nothing to me. I don't care. I got to see Jesus. I know he's coming this way. There's only one way I'm going to be in his path, climb up this tree. And it, it worked, <laughs> didn't it? Jesus stopped and looked up, and he said, I'm going to your house. Some scholars think he spent the night with, in Zacchaeus' house, talking about the things of the kingdom all night. And then you know the story, Zacchaeus came out a changed man. Desperate. That's a rare thing in Mark's gospel. But listen to me, the people that got an audience with Jesus fought this fight of faith of desperation. They did. Look at every single miracle in Mark's gospel, with few exceptions. The Syrophoenician woman that was a Gentile, she came to Jesus asking for her daughter to be healed. Remember what Jesus said? He said, ah, I'm not going to give the food that belongs to, the, uh, to the God's people to the dogs. Remember he said that? 
And she said, yes, Lord, but even, even the dogs get crumbs from the table. And he said, go your way. Your faith has made your daughter well. See, she had to fight for it. She had to fight. Not earn it. Not earn it. I'm not saying that. Listen, grace is against earning, not effort. There's a big difference there. There's a big difference there. These people didn't earn an audience with Jesus. They just fought. That's evidence of faith. You got the friends that carried their, their paralyzed buddy. You remember this story? You remember what they did? They were so desperate to get their friend in the presence of Jesus. You know what they did? They tore through the roof of the house he was teaching in. <laughs> what would happen if right now I'm in here teaching and all of a sudden you see ceiling tiles start falling? Seriously, insulation. You're like, what the heck is going on here? It's just somebody desperate to see me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> somebody desperate to hear the gospel, right? And they're willing to tear through the stinking roof. How do you think all those people in that room felt? Like, would you relax a little bit? <laughs> it happens over and over. Jairus, whose daughter was on the brink of death, remember he ran through the crowd, grabbed Jesus, shook him, said, teacher, please do something. Remember the woman with the issue of blood? She came and broke protocol. protocol. She violated the customs and the laws of the day. She was perpetually unclean. Couldn't even go to the temple to worship and she grabbed Jesus by the robe. Why? Because she was desperate and she had faith. That's why. And those are the people that find themselves in the presence of Jesus. The people that are so desperate, they see themselves clearly and they see him clearly. And listen, nothing's going to get in their way. That's, that's the second point here. Look at this. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, look at verse 47. See, they said... Jesus of Nazareth is here. And he heard that. And he knew. This is much more than a carpenter from Nazareth. He knew. He had heard. He was blind, but he wasn't deaf. He had heard the reports. He'd heard the stories. This man claims to be God. This man heals people. This man talks like no man ever talked before about the kingdom of God and about healing and about love and about God. And so look what he says. He began to cry out. He began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Now look, here's the fight. People are like, look, buddy, calm down. Calm down, you blind beggar. Calm down, old man. You're making a scene. This is a nice little Christmas parade here in Jericho, and we're trying to enjoy it. We got here early. Will you calm down a little bit? The word here for cry out is kradzo. Some words in Greek I don't need to define, do I? Kradzo, it's like Seal, uh, the song about being, you're never going to survive unless you get a little crazy, right? That's kind of the implication. Same word is used for the demoniac that's bloody and naked and lives in the graveyard in Mark 5. He cried out. Filled with demons, he was insane. Crazy. Same word is used in the book of Revelation to describe the end of time, comparing it to the birth pangs of a woman crying out. You ever been in the delivery room when a woman without an epidural has a baby? That's the same word, okay? Ah! He's crazy. He's crying out. He won't shut up. And they're like, hey, 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 calm down. Relax. Uh-uh. No, he's desperate. You're not shutting this guy up. You ever felt that way toward God? Or are you just bored? Just, just calm Christianity. Let's just take it in stride. Don't get too excited. Don't get too crazy there with that Christian thing. That's what the world is going to tell you. It is. I'm not saying be a weirdo and be an idiot and be a jerk. I'm not, we got enough of those, okay, in the world. I'm not saying that. Saying this man was passionate. He was earnest. The Bible talks about this all the time. And I think preachers are scared to talk about it. I really do. We need to hear it, though. We need to hear it. 
You know what the Bible says? It, there's this one part. I was studying this. I was studying two sermons this week. You're, you're getting the one that I thought would be, uh, serve our congregation the best. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. Crazy dude. Wore camel hair, ate grasshoppers dipped in honey, right? Crazy guy, lived in a crazy place. He lived in the wilderness. He was nuts, people thought. But he happened to be a, a devout, zealous follower of Jesus who had been radicalized, right? And Jesus is talking about him. And he said this. He said, I will tell you this. He said, to this day, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Have you heard that passage? Matthew eleven twelve. Translators don't know what to do with that. That word bothers them and leaves them unsettled because this is Jesus, meek, mild, lowly Jesus who said, blessed are the peacemakers, right? So surely he can't, be saying, blessed are the peacemakers, and let's be passive and docile. That's the way some people interpret that. And then over here, be saying the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Oh, goodness. So they kind of explain it away and use another word. No, no, that's, that's exactly what it means. There is this earnestness. There is this radical pursuit of Jesus that the Bible talks about. And that's what Jesus was talking about. And you can't explain it away because there's a parallel passage in Luke and it says, uh, everyone to this, day, <clears throat> to this day has been pressing into the kingdom. It's not talking about the enemies of Jesus, you know, storming the gates of heaven with pitchforks. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about violent in the sense of earnest. Um, you know what's going on today? There's a big race going on, I've heard, in central Florida today. Have you guys ever watched NASCAR drivers? Man, they're nuts. They're crazy. You do not want to get in their way. In fact, I had a friend from the church I went to in Ormond Beach. He worked for NASCAR. And a piece of a car fell off. And he did what you're never, ever, ever supposed to do. He broke all the laws of NASCAR. And he darted out because he cared about the race car drivers to grab that piece of, I think it was a bumper that fell off a car. His name was Roy. You may, you, you may have read this story. It happened years ago. He ran out to grab that piece, but you cannot calculate the speed of a car going over 100 miles an hour. And he got hit by a car, and I mean, it wasn't good. Instant death. Instant death. Why? Number one, you don't want to get in the way of a NASCAR race driver. Why? Because they're after a prize. Isn't it interesting? The Bible uses all these metaphors to describe the Christian life. It calls us soldiers, farmers, and athletes. And it compares the Christian life to a war and a race. I ran track in high school, and I played football in high school, uh, and I wasn't the greatest athlete in the world, but man, if you got in my way, I'm sorry, <laughs> you know? It's the way it is. That's what those passages are talking about. I'm trying all I, I can to put these imageries in your mind to help you understand. My family, five years ago, went to an Easter egg. I know you may be against that for Easter. Just bear with me, okay? I love Jesus, okay? And you can still hunt for Easter eggs, <laughs> And let your kids have a little fun on that day. So we went to this property. There are a bunch of people there. Bunch of families. Bunch of food. Lots of kids. Lots of babies. And it was a big property. And the bathroom was at the entrance to the property. And so they had a golf cart. And they would tote the kids and the senior adults up there to use the bathroom. And this guy that owns this property is so gracious. And the kids are like, we want to ride. We want to ride. So he would give kids rides on the golf cart. Now, golf carts are scary because they don't have a motor, most of them, right? They're silent and deadly. <laughs> battery operated. So I have a little boy <laughs> and he's very curious and he's very attentive and he got taken on a few rides and he's watching. He's two years old at the time. He's watching this guy driving. He's thinking, okay, you sit in the seat, you turn the key, you push on the pedal and vroom, off you go. So this guy took him for a few rides and 
didn't think anything of it. He parked the golf cart and he left the key in there. And my son saw that. He saw it. And I'm not going to tell you who it is. But he jumped on that golf cart. He turned the key. He pushed the pedal to the metal, baby. And there's picnic blankets out. There's little babies. and I'm not kidding. And I'm in a conversation. I hope I don't cry. This takes me back. Man, this like, it wrecked me. Nothing bad happened, okay? Almost. But it, I mean, we had to leave after this. I was so rattled. I was shaking. I'm talking with somebody, and I see this. I see, I, <laughs> I hear these gasps, and like, oh, oh. And I look over, and I see a golf cart going like 20 miles an hour. And this little kid with a puff of white hair flying in the wind, laughing. And I see a picnic blanket with babies on it right in his path. I'm, I promise you I'm not bragging. I'm in my 40s. I'm not the most athletically fit person. But my wife saw this from across the property. And she told me later, she said, I have never in my life seen a human being move as fast as you moved. I don't even remember it. It, it happened in slow motion, guys. All I saw was death and like litigation. <laughs> I, I was talking to this guy. I think I had coffee in my hand, and I just like, it was like a cat. You ever see one of those cat videos on YouTube if there's a cucumber behind them, and they turn around to see it, and they're like, they jump up in the air? I just, I, I ran, or I floated, or I flew. I'm not sure. I dove in that golf cart and slammed on that brake and put the parking thing on and looked at Marshall and grabbed him and said, <laughs> oh, oh, I said it. <laughs> yeah, you already knew. And I said, honey, let's go. We're leaving. And we left. But listen, listen, all I'm saying is this. There were people in between me and, Mar- and the golf cart. <laughs> and they got moved out of the way. Not gently. Why? Because, man, I, I had to get, this was life or death. I had to get radicalized. I had to get earnest. I had to violently pursue something or bad things were going to happen. And that's the language that is used here. That's the language with blind Bartimaeus. They're saying, shut up, calm down, take it easy. No. He crodzoed all the more, louder even, to get the Lord's attention. And, and you know what? Dadgummit, it worked. It worked. The Son of God, you know, in Greek it says, Jesus stood still. Man, I love, let that image soak into your mind and heart. This man's crazy, radical faith. He saw himself clearly. He saw Jesus clearly. He got radical. He got violent, downright violent in earnest. And his faith, the Bible says, stopped the Son of God deadness tracks. And Jesus says, go call him. Tell him to come here. Isn't it interesting? The same people, look at this verse. This is a side note. This is for free, okay? Not in the notes. But check this out. Look at, look at verse 48. And many rebuked him. So they're saying, shut up. Isn't it interesting how fickle people are in our lives? Because they're telling him to shut up. And then in verse 49, and Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, come on. So before they're telling him to shut up and now they're telling him to cheer up. I mean, don't, just don't listen to the world at all, no matter what they say, right? Because they're going to be fickle. But this man's faith, the reward, I mean, he had his eyes on the prize, just like NASCAR. They're, they, they're after one thing. Victory Lane, a tour in Victory Lane and that trophy. This guy wanted to see. He was in perpetual darkness. He was desperate. And if he didn't get, this is, listen, this is the last time that Jesus passed on this road. Last time. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? He would never pass this way again, humanly speaking. 
before the cross. It was, this was this guy's last chance. Maybe he knew. Maybe he knew much more than we do. The Messiah is going to suffer and die. He's on his way to Jerusalem, which is 15 miles away. If I don't get his attention now, it's over. I'll be blind the rest of my life. And his faith stopped Jesus dead in his tracks on the way to the cross. And that man's sight was restored. That's an amazing story. Aren't you glad that's in the Bible? I hope that encourages you. Because listen, the world will tell you it's, all, it's okay to get crazy about your sports team. Or your NASCAR, uh, whatever. All these crazy, it's okay, it's the world gives you permission to be radical about this or that, but anything to do with discipleship or Jesus or Christianity, it's just tone it down, don't get crazy, relax. It's the way it is. And I'm saying, don't buy it. Look at this story. Let your, let your faith be radical. And that doesn't mean you have to be a jerk. You know, we preach sermons about what that looks like. Don't misunderstand me. The fight for faith is to see clearly. It's not that you're doing something that earns you favor with God. It's you're fighting to see yourself clearly, that you're desperate, and then you're fighting to see Jesus clearly and say, I got to get his attention. And listen, that's a prayer. There's only two kinds of prayer in the world. I like reducing things down to the irreducible minimum. There's only two kinds of prayer in the world. Help and thank you. This one's help. <laughs> and God loves, loves, loves to hear that prayer. That prayer gets his attention. You remember the story of the publican and the, the Pharisee in Luke 18, I think it is? Two men went up to the temple to pray. One of them, a Pharisee, and he said, I thank you, God, that I do this, I do that, I tithe, I read my Bible, I pray, I evangelize. And he said, and I thank you, I'm not like that man over there. And it says, but the publican would him turn his head to heaven he beat his chest and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. One of those men went home justified. The other one went home cursed. By the way, do you know if you were blind in the ancient Near East, you were considered cursed by God? They thought that was divine punishment. You did something in your life. Remember John 9? Who, was, who sinned that this man was born blind? He or his parents? People viewed you as cursed by God. And maybe... Bartimaeus had believed all that. Maybe he thought, I'm blind, I'm broke, I'm poor, I'm cursed by God. This is my only chance. He got radical with his faith. And he stopped Jesus dead in his tracks. He pressed into the kingdom. Man, I just love that. That intensity, that zeal, that violence. He wasn't passive. There's a time to stop being passive. And to say, God, I need your help. I'm desperate here. Help me. Whatever it is, whatever struggle you're having, whatever besetting sin is conquering and overpowering you, take the lesson from Bartimaeus and say, Lord, I'm desperate. You've got to stop. You've got to help me. Have mercy on me. And God has plenty of mercy to give. He has plenty to give us. Well, the last point, and I told you it's short, and it is, it's follow Jesus freely. Look, he called him, Jesus called him, and he said, what do you want? Don't you love the questions in the Bible? Do you ever, be honest, do you think like I do? Sometimes I'm studying the Bible and I'm like, Jesus, I'm sorry, that's a dumb question. What did he say? What do you want me to do for you? Duh. <laughs> you ever wonder why Jesus asked stuff like that? I think he wants us to say it. What do you want me to do for you? You know, this guy could have asked for money. Maybe, hey, look, lots of pilgrims are going up to celebrate Passover on this road. Probably a lot of guilt. A lot of people would give you money. You can make a good living. I saw, no lie, I live in Deland over on Orange Camp Road and there's the same two panhandlers and I'm not 
saying anything negative about that. I, sometimes I give when I'm able and feel compelled. But you know, a lot of people make a lot of money begging. They do. And I saw something online that really provoked me. This guy that I've given money to before, there was a video of him leaving his panhandling spot, walking to a grocery store parking lot, and getting into his Mercedes and driving off. Not kidding. And I can't help but think of that when I read this. What do you want me to do for you? Put something in the bucket, Jesus. I mean, Jesus asks questions that are intentional. He wants you to answer. It's like, Lord, I'm desperate. I just want to see. I don't want to be superhuman. I just want to be human. I don't need the right hand place of glory or the left hand. Can you just please give me my sight back? Can you just please take this sin away? Can you please give me power to be a better parent, a better spouse? Can you help me to be courageous and not ashamed of the gospel? Can you help me to just be more regimented with reading the Bible and showing the love of Christ to people? Jesus wants us to articulate, what do you want me to do for you? I need your help. I need your power, God. And Jesus answers his prayer. Look at this. Last, last part here. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, don't miss this. Jesus is basically saying, you're free to go. You're free to go back to your life. And now you have your eyesight. You're free to go your way. But what does this man do? He goes Jesus' way, doesn't he? I mean, he didn't even take the time to go tour the city. of Jericho was a beautiful city. He could have gone and seen all the sights. You know where he went? He followed Jesus with haste, urgently. Jesus granted his prayer. See, so there's two prayers. There's help me and then there's thank you. Without saying it, this was thank you. He became a disciple on the road. He was on the side of the road in the beginning of the story. Same word in Greek. And now he's on the road behind Jesus, new disciple, following him. You know, you know can you imagine the first thing you see if your eyes are open? Have you seen those YouTube videos of people now they have these... Uh, really expensive glasses that if you're colorblind, you can see. Have you seen those? Are you a baby like me? I watch those and I just ball. I go in my room and make sure my kids aren't around. I'm like, <laughs> you see people putting on glasses and they can see color for the first time in their life. And it's moving. It moves. Maybe I'm just sentimental. That moves me. They can't control their crying when they see it. It's overwhelming to them. Can you imagine being blind your entire life and your eyes being open, and the first thing you see being the face of God. Oh, my word. Yeah, you'd probably want to follow him, wouldn't you? <laughs> wouldn't you want to do that freely without Jesus wagging his finger? Now you know. You've got to be devoted now. You've got to follow me. He didn't have to say any of that. When you've been shown tremendous and incredible and radical grace, you know what the response of your heart is? Gratitude, love, obedience, faithfulness. If you're constantly having to crack a whip of fear and judgment to make people follow Jesus, you probably haven't done a good job of explaining to them how radical his love is. Because that's what frees people up to follow Jesus, is radical, one-way, unconditional love. So this man followed Jesus. And you know one of the first events he saw was Jesus dying on the cross for his sins. Jesus was actually plunged in darkness so that this man can see. It's almost as if he traded places with him. This is an Incredible story. I hope it encourages you. I hope it helps you. Um, now listen, before we close in prayer, I want to tell you something. This, this sermon is about the fight of faith. Faith fights. And I've been a Christian long enough and a pastor long enough. I meet people all the time and they're like, Pastor, you just don't understand though. I just can't. I've lost the fight. 
things are overwhelming to me. Maybe it's a chronic sickness. Just life circumstances, they feel like they're plunged in darkness. And they say, I can't see anything clearly. How in the world do you fight in the dark? Please, 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 if that's you, come back next week. The entire message next week, I'm taking a, every time I get to the end of, of a chapter in Mark, I take a break and I preach on whatever I want because I can do that because I'm the pastor, right? <laughs> come back next week because I'm going to preach a message called How to Fight in the Dark. Fighting in the Dark. And if, if any of those things I just described as you, I think you'll be helped and you'll be encouraged that God understands what you're going through and fighting may look differently than you think it should when you're in the dark. So you come back next week.